skies, they were ashen and sober. The leaves, they were crisped and sere. The leaves, they were withering and sere. It was night in the lonesome October of my most immemorial year. It was hard by the dim lake of Ober, in the misty mid-region of Weir. It was down by the dank tarn of Ober, in the ghoul-haunted woodland of Weir. Here once, through an alley titanic, of cypress I roamed with my soul. Of cypress, with psyche my soul. These were days when my heart was volcanic, as the scoriac rivers that roll, as the lavas that restlessly roll, their sulfurous currents down Yannick, in the ultimate climbs of the pole, that groan as they roll down Mount Yannick, in the realms of the boreal pole. Welcome to Season by Season with Alexis and Kit, the podcast that celebrates and reforges our connection to nature and the passage of time. It is our hope that through prose, poetry, history, and sound, this podcast will help to inspire your interest in the natural world around us. Together, Alexis and I will be sharing observations of the seasons as we see them. We'll be looking through the lens of the 24 seasonal divisions, or mini-seasons as we like to call them, based on the progression of seasons in the traditional Japanese calendar. Now is the season of Soko, or First Frost. Spanning from October 23rd to November 6th, this mini-season traditionally saw the first frosts of autumn set in. The leaves are turning yellow and red, the mornings are full of mist, and light rains may begin to fall. The season of first frost is preceded by the mini-season of cold dew, and followed by the mini-season, the beginning of winter. There is a distinct chill in the air, and perhaps some chills up our spines as well. As in every season, there's lots to explore in the sky, in the ground, and in our lives as we begin our passage into this sometimes spine-chilling season. Along the way, our opening poem, Ulalum by Edgar Allan Poe, will be our guide. Let's set out. Our talk had been serious and sober, and our thoughts, they were palsied and sere. Our memories were treacherous and sere. For we knew not the month was October, and we marked not the night of the year. Ah, night of all nights of the year. We noted not the dim lake of Ober, though once we had journeyed down here. Remembered not the dank tarn of Ober, nor the ghoul-haunted woodland of Weir. And now, as the night was senescent, and star-dials pointed to morn, as the star-dials hinted of morn, at the end of our path a liquescent and nebulous luster was born, out of which a miraculous crescent arose with a duplicate horn, Astarte's bediamond crescent, distinct with its duplicate horn. 
Our opening poem sets an appropriately melancholy mood for this season, don't you think? The skies are gray, the leaves are withering, and October is lonesome. This is a mournful poem for a mournful month. One can definitely feel Poe's grief and anguish in this poem. It was written shortly after his wife Virginia died. But do you really think October itself is a mournful month, Kit? We've talked before about what a beautiful month it is. October is beautiful, yes. But there's some mournfulness there, too. I guess I think it can be both at the same time. We think the leaves as they turn are full of vibrant color. But remember, those leaves are dying. Dead. This time of year is full of death. That's a grim thought. You've been reading lots of Poe lately, haven't you? With Halloween falling at the end of the month, I guess I'm just ready for the grim and gruesome. I can see what you mean. Something we try to explore on this podcast in every episode is that, to everything, there is a season. The leaves and plants in our gardens may be withering and dying in October, yes, but they'll return next spring after all. In the meantime, however... I suppose it can be cathartic to indulge in our grim and gruesome side, if just for the season. There are quite a few reasons why, for me, October is an ideal month for scary stories. Do you remember when we talked about cooling things in summertime? Well, in October and November, the Kigo we're looking for is chilling things. Ah, I see what you did there. By chilling things, you mean something that might send a chill up your spine. Something eerie, or maybe even a little thrilling? Yes, exactly. The weather is certainly starting to cool, but the chill you feel when you are suddenly scared may have nothing to do with the surrounding temperature. It's interesting you should say that, Kit. Here in the United States, October is Halloween season, and the time of year you're most likely to find your way into a haunted house, creepy corn maze, or haunted attraction at an amusement park. But in Japan, haunted houses are a popular summertime attraction instead, for the precise reason that they send a chill up your spine. Being scared is actually considered a great way to cool off. Now, let's get in the chilling spirit with this classic piece of Baroque music, by Johann Sebastian Bach. Here is a poem by Emily Dickinson that just might give you a chill. 
I felt a funeral in my brain, and mourners to and fro kept treading, treading, till it seemed that sense was breaking through. And when they all were seated, a service, like a drum, kept beating, beating, till I thought my mind was going numb. And then I heard them lift a box and creep across my soul. With those same boots of lead again, then space began to toll. As all the heavens were a bell, and being but an ear, and I and silence some strange race wrecked solitary here, and then a plank in reason broke, and I dropped down and down, and hit a world at every plunge, and finished knowing, then... Ooh, that is a creepy one. Has this person realized that they're at their own funeral? Are they going mad? The poem doesn't offer a solid answer, but it's interesting to contemplate. We talked about dying leaves. Autumn seems to be a natural time to contemplate mortality. Aside from that, October is full of chilling things. For example, the cooling weather creates good conditions for mist. The image of mist rolling through the landscape can be a bit eerie. Yes, you never know who might be lurking in the mist. In European folklore, mist is often symbolic of the line between reality and illusion. This mysterious quality makes mist a good, chilling thing for me. In Japan, too, mist is a symbol of autumn and carries a melancholy connotation. Mist in autumn is called kiri in Japanese. More specifically, asagiri is morning mist and yugiri is evening mist. They are all good kigo, or seasonal words, for autumn. Here are two haiku by Isa that express a bit of that misty melancholy. Over one thicket, a custom-made shroud, evening mist. That shape's watching me, watching him, thin mist. Autumn mists bring to mind another iconic Kiko of the season in Japan, and indeed in many parts throughout the world. Deer. Autumn is mating season, and through the woods and forest echoes the eerie cry of the lonely, longing buck. Let's listen. By the way, listeners, you may want to have the volume notch at the ready. The cry is piercing. Piercing is right, yet also mournful. Actually, this reminds me, the verb to bell means to make a resonant bellowing or baying sound. There's a line by Sir Walter Scott, the wild buck bells from ferny brake. There really is a sense of autumn in these mournful sounds. Here are a few poems which capture this wistful, raw emotion. In the thicket, the old deer calls for honor's sake. When I hear the voice of the stag crying for his mate, stepping through the fallen leaves deep in the mountains. This is the time that autumn is saddest. 
This is the time that autumn is saddest. A haunting thought, indeed. And speaking of haunting, I think it must be time for us to return to Ulalume. And I said, she is warmer than Diane. She rolls through an ether of sighs. She revels in a region of sighs. She has seen that the tears are not dry on these cheeks, where the worm never dies, and has come past the stars of the lion to point us the path to the skies, to the Lethean peace of the skies. Come up, in despite of the lion, to shine on us with her bright eyes. Come up through the lair of the lion, with love in her luminous eyes. But Psyche, uplifting her finger, said, Sadly, this star I mistrust, her pallor I strangely mistrust. Ah, hasten, ah, let us not linger. Ah, fly, let us fly, for we must. In terror she spoke, letting sink her wings until they trailed in the dust. In agony sobbed, letting sink her plumes till they trailed in the dust, till they sorrowfully trailed in the dust. Talk about your chilling things. I may need some time to recover after that. Don't worry, Alexis. There are always those who may not find this season in the least bit sad or chilling, but rather, something comforting. I like the fall, the mist and all. I like the night owl's lonely call and wailing sound of wind around. I like the gray November day and bare dead boughs that coldly sway. Against my pain, I like the rain. I like to sit and laugh at it and tend my cozy fire a bit. I like the fall, the mist and I guess one person's chilling things could be another's cozy things. It's a good season to return to the fireside and sip hot tea or cocoa. Yes, this mini-season is called First Frost for a reason. We've got some cold nights ahead of us, so it feels particularly good to stay inside. There is some weather lore associated with October and November and these cold nights, which is another good Kigo, by the way. For instance, around this time of year, we might hear, Cold night, stars bright. There tend to be high-pressure systems in October that provide particularly clear skies at night. This may make the stars and moon appear brighter, along with the effect of the Earth's surface cooling rapidly without cloud cover to keep heat in. A related rhyme is, Clear moon, frost soon. Frost forms on nights when the weather is cold and clear enough, so when you see a particularly clear moon, you can expect a chilly morning. Did you say a chilling morning? Uh, I was still talking about the weather. Even so, don't you think that some of the best ghost stories begin on cold nights? It reminds me of the quote from Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale. A sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. You're getting seasonally ahead of yourself, Kit. 
We're still in autumn, not winter. But I take your point about cold nights, though. Telling tales by the fireside where it's warm is an ancient pastime. But isn't the cliché... It was a dark and stormy night. This can be a stormy season as well, and storms provide such a dramatic setting for horror stories. Like the mist, who knows what's lurking in the darkness? The lights flicker. Has the power been knocked out again? What might appear in a flash of lightning? Is it the wailing of the wind we hear, or the wailing of a mysterious something else? What kind of creature would brave being out on such a night? It's thrilling to think about what could happen on a stormy night. Okay, I get it. Here's a poem called Garden Under Lightning, subtitled Ghost Story, that may set just such a chilling stormy scene for you, Kit. Out of the storm that muffles shining night flash roses ghastly sweet, and lilies far too pale. There's a pang of vivid light, a terror of familiarity. I see a dripping swirl of leaves and petals that I once tended happily. Borders of flattened, frightened little things, and paths I surely walked in that other life. Day? My specter garden beckons to me, gibbers horribly, and vanishes. Ooh, didn't you just get chills? I've been having chills this entire episode. I need a sweater. Cold nights, clear nights, stormy nights, they're all prime settings for scary stories, but sometimes, it's nice to have a reminder that no matter how dark the night, morning eventually follows. The night will never stay. The night will still go by. Though with a million stars, you pin it to the sky. Though you bind it with the blowing wind and buckle it with the moon, the night will slip away like sorrow or a tune. After all of the mournful, wistful, and chilling feelings we may associate with autumn and October, isn't this also a month full of tricks and mischief? There's fun to be found amongst the fright. Oh, most certainly. To me, magical things happen in October. It brings to mind the famous quote by Humbert Wolf. Listen, the wind is rising and the air is wild with leaves. We've had our summer evenings, now for October eves. Ah yes, I remember that quote from last October's Cold Dew episode as well. It still brings shivers up my spine. An oldie but a goodie. Moonlit evenings, 
half-bare branches tugging at the moon, jack-o'-lanterns flickering in the darkness, and the swirl and sound everywhere of leaves. October gave a party. The leaves by hundreds came, the chestnuts, oaks, and maples, and leaves of every name. The sunshine spread a carpet, and everything was grand. Miss Weather led the dancing, Professor Wind the band. The chestnuts came in yellow, the oaks in crimson dressed, the lovely Mrs. Maple in scarlet looked their best. All balanced to their partners, and gaily fluttered by. The sight was like a rainbow, new fallen from the sky. Then, in the rustic hollow, at hide-and-seek they played. The party closed at sundown, and everybody stayed. Professor Wind played louder, they flew along the ground. And then the party ended, in jolly hands around. Leaves and wind stir up very mischievous feelings in me, and indeed, in poets throughout the ages. Here is an excerpt from Ode to the West Wind by Percy Bysshe Shelley, who is similarly inspired by the autumn wind. O wild west wind, thou breath of autumn's being, thou from whose unseen presence the leaves dead are driven like ghosts from an enchanter fleeing, yellow and black and pale and hectic red, pestilence-stricken multitudes. O thou, who chariotest to their dark wintry bed, the winged seeds where they lie cold and low, each like a corpse within its grave, until thine as your sister of the spring shall blow. Her clarion o'er the dreaming earth, and fill, driving sweet buds like flocks to feed in air, with living hues and odors plain and hill. Wild spirit, which art moving everywhere, destroyer and preserver, here, oh here. Now that we are firmly in autumn, as days grow shorter, they seem to grow darker too. During autumn, the tilt of the Earth's axis is away from the sun, so our shadows at midday are longer. We associate shadows and darkness with so much that is considered scary that it is worth mentioning along with other chilling things. Like mists and storms, it might not be the shadows we are afraid of so much as what the shadows might conceal. Shadows are created by the absence of light, and folklore from cultures around the world often tells of shadow figures or shadow creatures. Sometimes these are symbols of death, given as evidence of spirits from beyond, and sometimes these are symbols of the human soul. In Eastern European folklore, it was said that by inflicting harm upon a shadow, the person attached to the shadow would also suffer. 
In more modern times, shadows are representative of an idea in psychology to discuss the unknown or unconscious side of one's personality. Carl Jung wrote, Everyone carries a shadow, and the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious life, the blacker and denser it is. It seems a common thread that shadows represent the unknown. The unknown can be a scary thing to face. Here's a poem about shadows that's not too scary. It may even be a nice metaphor for this season of chilling things. What do you think? Gloomy the earth on the shadowless days, sad and monotonous, ghostly with haze. Gloomy the sky by the clouds overrun, days without shadow are days without sun. Bright is the earth where the dark shadows lie, cast by the beams of a glittering sky. Praise for the shadows when the earth days are done, for the darker the shadows, the brighter the sun. I must say I like that one. Even though this episode has focused on things which go bump in the night. There's a lot we love about autumn, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. We all know it's your favorite season, Alexis, and indeed, a favorite of mine. In this spirit, it's time to return once more to Udalina. I replied, this is nothing but dreaming. Let us on by this tremulous light. Let us bathe in this crystalline light. Its sibilant splendor is beaming with hope and in beauty tonight. See, it flickers up the sky through the night. Ah, we safely may trust to its gleaming and be sure it will lead us aright. We safely may trust to a gleaming that cannot but guide us aright, since it flickers up to heaven through the night. Autumn and spring may be the most popular and beloved seasons for cultures the world over. In Japan, the melancholy and longing we feel as autumn slips through our grasp and winter takes over is called sekishu, literally the regret of autumn. I think a lot of our listeners might be feeling sekishu. But this podcast is here to remind us all that no matter the season, no matter if the days are long or short, there's always something interesting to look out for and to look forward to. That's the spirit kit. And speaking of spirits, you know we couldn't let the season of first frost pass us by without delving into one of our favorite holidays of the season. Halloween! Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. We've been waiting for this. <laughs> like kids who look forward to trick-or-treating. That's right. Here's a poem that captures some of that excitement. When the twilight comes down on all Halloween, then we fly on the wings of the nights, over land, through the streets, in each home we are seen, and are known everywhere by our light. For our eyes are like stars, and our noses aglow with the candles that make us so bright, and our mouths are so jagged that none can but know. We are jack-o'-lanterns, all right. (laughs) 
Dear listeners, as we approach the end of the calendar year, we have quite a few holidays ahead of us. Our next two episodes will feature major holidays as well, but Halloween in particular holds a special place in our hearts. The origin of Halloween is fascinating to me. We know that the word Halloween comes from All Hallows' Eve, which was the beginning of the Christian liturgical festival All Hallowtide. This was a time to remember the dead, and particularly martyrs and saints. The hollow in All Hallowtide comes from the word holy, and tide meant time, so it was a holy time of year. All Hallows' Eve on October 31st was the first night of All Hallowtide, and was followed by All Saints' Day on November 1st. The final day of All Hallowtide was All Souls' Day on November 2nd. Though All Hallows' Eve may have started as a religious festival, many of its modern traditions and practices are actually more closely related to Samhain, a Celtic harvest festival. Though Samhain and the Christian All Hallowtide began as two very separate festivals that happened to fall on the same days, it's believed that over time they influenced each other and syncretized into the modern secular Halloween. The word Samhain is believed to come from an old Irish word meaning summer's end. This festival marked not only the harvest, but the beginning of winter and the darker half of the year. Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the fascinating relationship between All Hallowtide and Samhain, we'll post some resources on our website, seasonbyseason.org. Samhain may be where we get many of the classic symbols of Halloween. It may be that the association of black cats with the holiday actually comes from Samhain. In Celtic mythology, black cats are sacred and a sign of protection, good luck, and good health. Black cats may have been keeping bad spirits at bay during Samhain. It wasn't until later, when Halloween came across English and Germanic influences in America, that the black cat took on the negative connotation of witches familiar. So everyone out there listening, please be kind to the black cats in your life, at Halloween and all year round. They're good luck in Japanese folklore as well. A black cat, I've heard it said, can charm all ill away, and keep the house wherein she dwells from fever's deadly sway. Some of the other traditions of Samhain might sound pretty familiar to you. Apple bobbing, guising, that is, wearing a disguise and going from house to house reciting a verse in exchange for food, and carving turnips to use for lanterns were all common practices during Samhain. Wait a minute. Apple bobbing makes sense. I know that apples in Celtic mythology were associated with the other world. And I understand guising is similar to our modern trick-or-treating, but what was that about the turnips? Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? When geysers would go from door to door, they would light their way with lanterns made from hollowed out turnips, usually with faces carved into them, which might have personified old spirits. These generally became known as, can you guess? I know, jack-o'-lanterns. That's right. When this tradition was brought to America by Irish immigrants in the early 1800s, pumpkins were used instead of turnips. I see. As for trick-or-treating, this is one of those interesting traditions that existed both as part of Samhain and also seemingly independently in the Christian All Hallowtide. 
disguising as part of Samhain was done in costumes representing spirits and collected food for a Samhain feast. In the Christian tradition, the practice of souling involved wearing costumes, singing songs, and asking for soul cakes. Ah, soul cakes. Listeners, you may have heard of them from a very famous folk song. A soul cake, also known as a soul mass cake, is a small, round, spiced cake, or what we might call a cookie here in the United States, which was traditionally made for All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Day, and All Souls' Day to commemorate the dead. The practice of children and the poor going from door to door, singing and praying and requesting cakes for the souls of the deceased, dates back to the medieval period. Now, with this in mind, let's give a listen to a version of A Solon, also known as Hey Ho Nobody Home, as sung by Jacob de Groot Majetti, Evie Castor, Joan Ang, Christopher Hawthorne, and Emily Wong. Hey ho, nobody home, no meat nor drink nor money have I none. Still I will be married. Hey ho, nobody home. Hey ho, nobody home, no meat. were considered good luck, sometimes made into triangles to represent the trinity, sometimes with coins baked inside, or sometimes with currants decorating the top. Sounds fun, and probably healthier overall than Halloween candy, right? If you're interested in trying salt cakes for yourself, we'll post a recipe on our website, seasonbyseason.org. Soul cakes went hand in hand with all of the mischief of Halloween night, including carrying jack-o'-lanterns, dressing in disguise, bonfires, playing divination games, carrying a horse's head, and performing plays. Wait a minute, I'm going to need you to go back again. What was that about a horse's head? Well, it might not have been a real horse's head, or it was often just the skull. Oh, that somehow doesn't sound much better. It's what's known as a hobby horse. A man carrying the head would lead a group of geysers from door to door. It made sense on a night when departed souls were wandering about to have an intimidating figure like that to ward off dangerous spirits. Let's not forget that the spirits of the dead still inspire this holiday after all. Thy soul shall find itself alone mid dark thoughts of the gray tombstone, not one of all the crowd to pry into thine hour of secrecy. Be silent in that solitude, which is not loneliness, for then the spirits of the dead who stood in life before thee are again in death around thee, and their will shall overshadow thee. Be still. The night 
though clear, shall frown, and the stars shall not look down from their high thrones in the heaven with light like hope to mortals given. But their red orbs, without beam, to thy weariness shall seem as a burning and a fever which would cling to thee forever. Now are thoughts thou shalt not banish, now are visions ne'er to vanish. From thy spirit shall they pass no more like dewdrop from the grass. The breeze, the breath of God, is still, and the mist upon the hill, shadowy, shadowy yet unbroken, is a symbol and a token. How it hangs upon the trees, a mystery of mysteries. With Samhain celebrating summer's end, and a celebration of the coming dark days of winter, and All Hallows' Eve a celebration of departed souls, we can now understand how Halloween has become both Harvest Festival and the often macabre, mischief-filled night we know today. We've been talking about Halloween and All Hallows' Eve, but at the same time, it's important to remember All Saints' Day on November 1st and All Souls' Day on November 2nd. In Mexico, these two days have been combined into one holiday that involves family and friends gathering to pay respects and to remember friends and family members who have died. Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead, is both a joyful and nostalgic time. One very recognizable symbol of the Day of the Dead is calavera, or skulls. Across Mexico, people paint their face with colorful skulls, and skulls made out of sugar are placed on ofrendas, altars as offerings for departed family members. The skull represents death and ancestors who have passed on, and also celebrates the beauty and vibrancy of life. Another interesting thing about Day of the Dead is that there exists a distinctive literary form during this holiday, where people write short poems in traditional rhyming verse, called calaveras literarias, which means literary skulls. According to writer Sochi Chavez, these poems are mocking, lighthearted epitaphs, mostly dedicated to friends, classmates, co-workers, or family members, both living and dead, but also to public or historical figures, describing interesting habits and attitudes, as well as comedic or absurd antidotes that use death-related imagery, and which include, but is not limited to, cemeteries, skulls, or the Grim Reaper, all of this in situations where the dedicatee has an encounter with death itself. Kit, are you up for a little Cavalier Calaveras Literarias? <laughs> I wanted a happy death for you, Alexis, so here's mine. <clears throat> death found her elated as she celebrated another trip round the sun. A talented cook, she'd found in a book a recipe she'd thought looked quite fun. Called Death by Chocolate, now don't you knock it, as deaths go, it's second to none. And so she did bake her last birthday cake. A smile on her face, she went to the good place. And now her story is done. <laughs> Pretty good. Here's mine. Late one night, feeling the cold, little kids lit a pot of tea, and lo, behold! Alas, she steeped it too long, it became quite bitter, 
But worse than that, the stove flames did spit at her. Then up rose the fire from the stove with a roar. Death didn't want her to sip, not a pour. Oh, so distraught and feeling quite scared, Kit ran from the house. Teacup in hand she did dare. You will not take my tea, neither fire nor death, said fierce little Kit, her last epitaph. For running through the night, she did not spy the deep ditch before her where she might die. In triumph, the reaper had come for his crop, yet little Kit did insist she enjoy the last drop. So together a tea party was set all to do. Death and Kit, two cups, then adieu. Most macabre, dear friend. And likewise with you. Now, if all this poetry has got you hungry, fear not. We do have a method for making sugar skulls, or calaveras de azucar, on our website. We also have an excellent recipe from Italy for ossi de morti, or bones of the dead. Perfect with tea or coffee. You know, Kit, I think the association of death and autumn is common across many cultures. We can see some of that in Japan as well, though it's not treated in quite the same lurid, ghostly way as on Halloween. Japan's association with death and autumn is a little more subtle, I think. I think we caught a glimpse of this in our last episode. For instance, in the Higanbana, the red spider lily, and its close connection with both autumn and graveyards. But what specifically did you have in mind, Alexis? I suppose I had in mind a quote by psychologist Hayao Kawaii, who observed that beauty is completed only if we accept the fact of death. Autumn is the season that starts with Ohigan and visits to ancestral graves and continues into the godless month, which we talked about in last year's beginning of winter episode, and finally gives way to the darker, coldest time of the year. Autumn forces us to look at the world in all its misty, dying gloom, and yet shows us the glory there. What a moving thought. I truly can't understand why this would be your favorite season. It's a time of reflection, I find, remembering what's truly important. And it's around this time of year that I think remembering and celebrating family become more a part of our daily lives. We see this in the Day of the Dead in Mexico, and as we discussed in our last episode, in the Mid-Autumn Festival and Ohigan. There's a nostalgic feeling of farewell known as Nagori in Japanese. Though the literal translation is closer to remnant, it's used to mean remembrance of times past. It's not a kigo for any specific season, though the last tea of autumn in traditional tea ceremony is sometimes given this term. I think the idea of remembrance of times past can be seen in a lot of autumnal images. Trees left barren of leaves, or perhaps with just one fruit left unpicked. Ah, there's an interesting story there, Kit. The image you're describing is one you may have seen on a persimmon tree, right? Yes, that sounds right. We talked about persimmons, or kaki as they're called in Japanese, in our beginning of winter episode last year. Their bright orange color against bare tree branches is one of the images that sticks out to me in my memories of autumn in Japan. That last lonely persimmon on the tree is known as Kimamori, the tree warden or guardian persimmon. After all other fruits have been picked, one is left alone on the tree, 
imbued with all the gratitude for a good harvest and the hopes for an abundant harvest the following year. It's a talisman for the future. So, what seemed like a lonely image to me was actually one of hope. There's something beautiful in that. The trees are undressing and fling in many places on the gray road, the roof, the windowsill, their radiant robes and ribbons and yellow laces. A leaf each second so is flung at will. Here, there, another and another, still and still. A spider's web has caught one while down coming that stays there dangling when the rest pass on. Like a suspended criminal hangs he, mumming in golden garb, while one yet green high yawn trembles as fearing such a fate for himself anon. Before we conclude, let's take a breath and explore the changing seasons a little more deeply with our dear friend Hiroaki Sato, with Hiro's Corner, narrated as always by Ed von Atterkass. Winter's Neighbor, Departing Autumn The two seasonal words Alexis and Kit have given me this time are Fuyu Donari, Winter's Neighbor, and Yuku Aki, Autumn that is going away, or Departing Autumn. A winter's neighbor can also be spring, when you think about it, but by convention it points to autumn, or fall. Also by convention, or by the lunar calendar, Aki, fall, refers to the seventh month, eighth month, and nine month, but by the solar calendar it covers September, October, and November. I'm sure that most haiku writers in Japan today have adjusted the difference between the lunar and solar calendars, but how much? I don't know. I haven't asked my Japanese friends who are haiku writers. When I think of the change from autumn to winter, I think of The Fantastics, the first musical I saw in New York City, or anywhere else for that matter. And that was in the spring of 1968. And Try to Remember goes like this. Deep in December, it's nice to remember that although you know the snow will follow, Deep in December, it's nice to remember, the fire of September made us mellow. So let's look at a couple of Winter's Neighbors haiku. Kusama Tokihiko, who lived from 1920 to 2003, served as the president of the Association of Haiku Poets, the Haiku Kyokai. He's known for his salaryman's haiku, among other things. He wrote, The sun shines into the depths of the closet, Winter's Neighbor. In Japan, before the Western-style beds became more common, you'd fold your own bed and paraphernalia that came with it and put them into the oshiire, the closet, every morning. Does this haiku suggest anything special about a salaryman's life? Kusama is said to have come to this country and gone to Europe often after 1987 to spread the gospel of the internationalization of haiku, according to his wiki bio. Karakawa Genyoshi, who lived from 1917 to 1975, was the founder of the publisher Kadokawa Shoten and started the magazine Haiku, as well as the magazine Tanka. Here's a haiku by Genyoshi, whose haiku nom de plume was Gengi. In the darker place, someone fades, 
Winter's Neighbor. Fuyudanari is often replaced by phrases that make similar sense, such as Fuyu Omatsu, waiting for winter, Fuyu Chikashi, winter is near, Kaya Shirao, who lived from 1738 to 1791, one of the most important haiku writers of the poet period, along with Yosa Buson and Oshima Yuriota, wrote this. Winter is near, the sun shines on the kite's belly. Here, kite, tobi, does not refer to the artificial construction people fly in the sky, but to the bird of prey, sometimes translated as black kite or kite hawk. It may well be the only common hawk-like bird of prey in Japan. Since we've mentioned Karukawa Genyoshi, we must mention his son, Haruki, who hated his philanderous father so much that he revolted, it said. He advocated the haiku as Tamashi no Ichigyosho, the soul's one-liner poem. This may surprise some of you because you are used to the haiku as a tercet, although to the Japanese the haiku comes as a one-liner, almost always. Here's one of Haruki's soulful haiku. Moon rises, rapeseed flowers line up yellow and bloom. Canola blossoms, with the moon in the east, the sun in the west. The other seasonal word, yuku-aki, autumn that is going away, departing autumn, at once reminded me of the piece that concludes Basho's famous travel account, The Narrow Road to the Interior. It reads, Amaguri no futami ni wakare yuku aki zo. This haiku is loaded with such a complex web of puns, while also written in three lines, five, three, nine. The best I could do, 25 years ago, was a clam separates lid from flesh as autumn departs. So I asked Charlie Trumbull, who compiles haiku archives, to see how other translations have handled yuku-aki, although this kigo itself is not the focal point of the puns. For his archives, Charlie collects all the translations of haiku that he comes across. He promptly responded and sent me 15 translations of this hoku. Some of these have translated Yuki-Aki as follows. I follow Autumn by Lucian Strike. As Autumn departs, Sato. Well, that's me. I go, and Autumn too. Bernard Leonard Einbond. Autumn and I must walk on. James David Andrews. Autumn, parting we go. R.H. Blythe. Fall going, and we part. Robert Huss. Passing Autumn. Sam Hamill. How complex the puns involved are, you must read the last of the endnotes in my Basho's Narrow Road, Spring and Autumn Passages. And I'd like to conclude this report by citing a yuku-aki piece by my haiku writer friend, Ono Yoko. The Autumn Departs, the Statue of Liberty on the Other Shore. Yoko came here to visit with her haiku group several years ago. Her haiku nom de plume is Marina. This season, as autumn bids us farewell, I hope you part with it on good terms. I am reminded of two final kigo for this season, Akifukashi and Fujitaku. Akifukashi means autumn deepens. In this mini-season, autumn reaches its glorious triumph and then, quite suddenly, fades. 
The nights are cold, the frost is thick, the leaves fall and autumn deepens further. Let us enjoy these days while we can. White dew shines in as autumn deepens, hanging on the leaves. Autumn deepens, frost at the night's edge. The cold moon appears. At the same time, winter preparation is at hand. This is the meaning of the word fuyujitaku. Houses and gardens to be prepared, clothing to be taken out and put away, another season of change. Time to prepare ourselves against the cold, for the next season at hand is the beginning of winter. And as these colder thoughts take hold, let's say a last farewell to Ulalum. Thus, I pacified Psyche and kissed her, and tempted her out of her gloom, and conquered her scruples and gloom, as we passed to the end of the vista, who were stopped by the door of the tomb, by the door of a legended tomb. And I said, what is written, sweet sister, on the door of this legended tomb? She replied, Ululum, Ululum. Tis the vault of thy lost Ululum. And my heart, it grew ashen and sober as the leaves that were crisped and sear, as the leaves that were withering and sear. And I cried, it was surely October on this very night of last year that I journeyed, I journeyed down here, that I brought a dread burden down here. On this night of all nights in the year, ah, what demon hath tempted me here? Well, I know now this dim lake of Ober, this misty mid-region of Weir. Well, I know now this dank tarn of Ober, this ghoul-haunted woodland of Weir. for braving this chilly and chilling season of first frost with us. This season, some of the kiko or seasonal words we covered are dying leaves, chilling things, mist, autumn deer calls, cold nights, storms, leaves in the wind, shadows, sekishu, the regret of autumn, Halloween, all hallowtide, Samhain, black cats as symbols of good luck, Jack-o'-lanterns, soul cakes, Day of the Dead, All Souls Day, Kimamori, the Guardian Persimmon, Akifukashi, the Deepening of Autumn, and Fuyujitaku, Preparations for Winter. Listeners, what are some other seasonal words you associate with this mini-season? We know we left out quite a few Halloween-related Kiko. We'd love to hear from you, so email your Kiko to our email address, seasonbyseasonpodcast at gmail.com or feel free to leave a comment on our Facebook page. By the way, you know you can always listen to our old episodes, revisit favorite poems, and take a look at visual examples of Kiko on our website, seasonbyseason.org. 
a special permanent home for our podcast and all things seasonal. On this episode, you heard poems and prose by Edgar Allan Poe, Emily Dickinson, Kobayashi Isa, Sarumaru, Dixie Wilson, Leonora Spire, Eleanor Farjian, George Cooper, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Amos Russell Wells, Jane A. Stewart, and Thomas Hardy. The poems featured in this podcast are in the public domain or used with permission from their creators. We would like to thank our poetry readers for this episode. Chris Whitaker, Zachary Piper, Corey Kohler, Andy Schartzer, Alan Coyne, Bernabe Ted Castalis, Brandy Gibson, Dominic Palamenti, Irina Miles, Jason Berner, Vicky Kagawan, and Nikki. We would also like to extend an extra special thanks to all the musical contributors on this episode. Thank you, Chris Whitaker, Valeria Sholakova, James Noriaku Schleffer, and Jacob DeGroot Majetti. We will have information about all these artists on our website. And if you are still in the mood for more chilling tunes, be sure to check out our specially curated Spotify companion playlist, available on our website. As always, special thanks once again to Hiroaki Sato and Ed von Arakas for their contributions to this episode. Henry David Thoreau wrote, October is the month for painted leaves, as fruits and leaves and the day itself acquire a bright tint just before they fall, so the year nears its setting. October is its sunset sky, November the later twilight. As we head into the twilight of the year, we hope that you will join us for our next episode, Light Snow. See you in another season. 